Hey friends, how are you doing? Uh, so before we start tonight's episode with John E.L. Tenney, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has been checking out the podcast. I know there's a ton of podcasts out there and a ton of, uh, you know, occulty, paranormal, ufological podcasts out there. So I'm absolutely so humbled that people are actually listening to this show. So thank you so much. It really does mean a lot to me. I care deeply about doing this. I really am enjoying myself. So the fact that anyone's listening at all really is uh, exciting to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you do listen to this show and you dig it at all, a review on Apple and Spotify would be amazing. So please write a little review and be as honest as you want. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode with John E.L. Tenney. Thanks, friends. Bye-bye. Do you think UFOs, the paranormal, weird history, cryptozoology, and outsider art are pretty darn cool? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to High Strangeness with your host, Steve Berg. Hello, friends. Welcome back to High Strangeness. Tonight, I have... Oh, Get ready for this. I have John E. L. Tenney on the show. John, how are you doing, pal? I'm good, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you for asking. John, I have a quick, quick question that has been eating at me all day since I knew you were coming on. And that is, okay. do people in Michigan really believe that Michigan is part of the Midwest? Uh, no. Really? I don't think so. I mean, you guys are Eastern Standard Time. You know, if you look at a map, you guys like aren't really in the mid and you're not really that West. Yeah. I really feel like people in Michigan feel like we're our own thing. Mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. that that's every, but every state feels that they're their own thing, but Michigan is this weird. We're not the East coast. We're not middle America. We're North. Like it doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Thank you. You know what? Cause I've asked multiple people from Michigan. I mean, I would even make the argument for Chicago. But Michigan, I mean, you know, I actually pulled it up on the map today, and it is, it's a beautiful looking state. It just has, its, mm -hmm. it does its own thing. It just shoots it up a top, surround by water. <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous looking state, Fred, <laughs> um, from a map's view, and I'm sure geographically speaking. But um, it's nice to hear you say that, because I feel like a lot of these people really hold on to that Midwest label, where the Midwest to me is more of a state of mind. Yeah, for sure. And it's weird, because in Michigan... Like if you go north, everyone sounds like they're from Minnesota. And if you drop into like southern Michigan, like you start to pick up almost like a kind of hillbilly drawl. Right. Right. Like we just don't know what we are. We're just like this huge amalgamation of people stuck on this little partial island. <laughs> well, you know, I think having some sort of accent, you know, handy is lucky because being from Nebraska, we were the telemarketing capital of the world in the 90s because we have no accent we're flat we're like hello how are you doing you know it's very boring you know i've even like in kansas and missouri you get kind of a twang and colorado kind of has their own thing but we have nothing and it's uh kind of unfortunate yeah in michigan it's a lot of uh nose talk a lot of yeah. our speaking comes out of our nose our the voices get a little bit high mm, so i like have trained myself to stay down in my my chest voice. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there is something to about where you place your voice. You know, any singer will tell you that. Speaking of. I'm not of, a singer, so. <laughs> well, I don't know. You're a baritone, probably. I, who doesn't love a crooning baritone? I do love crooning. I, yeah. See, here we go. Everyone, the John Tinney album will be coming out uh, the fall of 2024. Uh, it's going to be wonderful. 
John working on a kids album. Are you really? Yeah, because I make up these silly like paranormal kid songs, like the Halloween Frog, and um, the Turkey Ghost. And so I was like, I'm gonna put out like a kids album of like spooky, funny songs for kids. Uh, yes, please. That is going to be amazing. I mean, now I feel like I might have kids just so they can enjoy it. I've always wanted one of those books like I had when I was a little kid that where it's like the story, but then in the back, there's this flap that has a 45. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out how to get that done. Well, do you remember sometimes in the back, I remember they would have like a plastic, like a little flap. It would have a cassette and cassettes have made a comeback. So just, you know, food for thought. It is true. (laughs) Hey, did you go to the Dinosaur Junior show? I was going to, and then I found out that there were like four other bands that I didn't want to see. Right. And the last time I actually saw anything Dinosaur Jr. related was a solo Jay Maskus show. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I want to sit through like three other bands. And it's yeah. kind of like, it's like, it's kind of like an amphitheater outdoor seating venue. Oh, right. And in my brain, every time I've seen a Dinosaur Jr. show, they've been inside. And so the sound has just blown me off my feet. Yep. And outside, I feel like it just kind of loses something. You know, that's interesting. I saw Dinosaur Jr. for the first time at a huge venue. It was at a, uh, I think the Fuck Yeah Fest in LA, I believe it was. And it was a huge outdoor venue. And it was like pretty good, you know. But like, mm-hmm. then I had seen him multiple times afterwards. It's so much, so much better. Seeing him at the Troubadour or a small venue. Because part of it is the sound. of It's just like, you know, you feel Dinosaur Jr. Like My Bloody Valentine's. Bands like yeah. that just are like noise bands. And that's part of the aesthetic. And... Yeah, Without when that. I saw that, when I saw that solo Jay Maskus show, it was at a venue, maybe 300 people. Oh, perfect. And he sits up on stage with an acoustic guitar, and I was like, what's this going to be? And I didn't realize, like, in front of him, he had his looper pedal and, like, a big muff. Yeah. And when he turned it on, like, it was like a, it was crazy. It was like your hair blew back. Yeah, yeah. It's an it's an earthquake, man. I'm I'm a huge... He's actually one of those guys who I feel like, because I've been following his career for, God, 20 years now. And his, I mean, the new stuff he puts out is great. <laughs> and like, yeah. I don't feel like enough people talk about it, but he is still consistently putting out incredible music. Never really had a down, a down era, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, because uh, I worked at a record store in the 80s, like it's a perfect place to work in the 80s, right? Oh, yes. Everything was happening. We were getting as many free records as we wanted. Labels were pushing everything. And I I was a punk rock kid. And so like when those first couple Dinosaur Jr. albums came out, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yep. Like I'm in a, I'm, my punk rock mindset is like, you know, be your own unique self, be an individual. And here was some shit that like, yeah, I could hear a little bit of Neil Young in in it every now and then, but like the way that it would spiral off into just like crazy bass lines and yep. those fucking solos, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. It's just chaos, it, controlled it, chaos. It is chaos. And Murph on drums, especially in those early, I mean, when it was oh, a yeah. three piece, the earlier, the original band, Lou Barlow, who went on to Sebado, yep. which I love. I mean, I, all the, those three guys, like really, it was like, what are those kind of like perfect situations? Cause they played so hard and so uniquely, especially like coming from the hardcore kind of punk scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a risky sound. I mean, Sonic youth was doing experimental stuff too, but like dinosaur junior man, like that must've been, cause I didn't see him back in that era. And I wonder, did people really have like a weird reaction to them at first? I mean, 
I, the first time I saw them was at this place called St. Andrew's Hall, which is a smaller venue, maybe four or 500 people. And I mean, it was sold out yeah. and people were going crazy. Um, so I think people were getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's so strange now to think, though, that like Luke, like, uh, excuse me, that that Jay Maskus has like a signature guitar now. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? mean? He, I know, man. I mean, he's a, I mean, he's considered one of the great virtuosos like of Generation X, I think. Right. I mean, it'd have to. Be. Oh, yeah. There's like endless YouTube videos of him, like talking about how he plays guitar. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just so low key. Like, I mean, his energy level—he's always like barely awake, even on stage. Yeah, that's yeah. the best part. <laughs> I just like to play solos, and they go real loud. Yeah, I either, <laughs> I, I only play a Fender Jaguar or a Jazzmaster. Uh, yeah, he's the best man. Uh, his purple outfits, God bless him. John, I just want to start off the bat saying uh, I'm not going to butter your biscuit too much. And I keep on saying butter, buttering biscuits on this podcast night for some reason. I don't say it in normal life, but it just comes out naturally <laughs> when I'm recording the show. I don't know what that means. But, uh, Are you hungry? Do you like biscuits? Are you I'm, hungry? I, I think it is. Well, I like to podcast hungry. You know, It keeps me like you know sharp and like ready to go. Um, but I, I was telling Jessica Napik uh, when I had her on the show, just like – you and her have this comedic, like this wonderful comedic partnership chemistry. And I, I I feel like I got, you know, asked some of the questions with Jessica about it, like how you met and stuff like that. But like, did you realize before, wait, because you've known her for years, right? Yeah, I think we've known each other for 10 years, over 10, 10 years, years, maybe. Okay. But did you guys, like when you were like hanging out even before the podcast, like did you guys have like a good comedic tone together? I think so. I think it was because a lot of our interactions happened when she, when I would visit her, she would bartend. Right. And so like there was our, our conversations like built around brevity. Right. Because she was working and drunkenness. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's where comedy lives. (laughs) (laughs) And so like we had to say things to each other kind of short. They had to be impactful. And then we also had to remember like what the, what she had said, because she might say something or I might say something. Then she turns around and has to go somewhere and work for 10 minutes. And when she comes back, the conversation has to pick up or be related to the conversation in a way that makes sense. Yes. So you both listen to each other, which is the key and the foundation of improvisational comedy, which is what you guys kind of do. I mean, you know, on your show, I don't like, unless you guys are like, you know, these you know, conniving people who like, you know, write bits for your show. <laughs> I mean, maybe you do, but like it, to me, it is very off the cuff. It feels like a real conversation. It feels like how two best friends talk, but it's very funny. So it sounds like, you know, like not necessarily uh, that I'm funny, but like when I talk to my friends who are comedians, and funny people in general, it feels like that. And it's just so not forced and planned and organic. And I find it absolutely captivating (laughs) well thanks i think um maybe like it comes to right like when you're friends with someone whether they're a comedian or not you get into this mind it's not a mindset it's it's like a trance state right Mm -hmm. where you're listening and focusing and you're not worried about what you're going to say next because you're listening to what they say but as they say it your brain is filling with all of the different directions it can go so, like, that's 
a norm for at least for me, a normal conversation with friends. I'm trying to listen, pay attention, and I want to add to the conversation. Right. That that is it. That's the basic, you know, distilling down, you know, the whole philosophy of like the kind of improv I learned the Chicago style is listen, listen, and then yes and. Right. And then add something too. You know, not don't like negate what they're saying. Just even if you don't like where it's going comedically, if you follow the yes and rule, it always works. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, I, I I can see that. And like I've, you know, I've done stand up before. It's not improv. Like mm-hmm. I've written bits and, you know, gotten my solid six minutes, you know, stuff like that. Sure. But it's it's interesting, too, to kind of subvert yes anding, especially like on when I'm talking to Jessica because she'll want to go somewhere and I'll just go. I, I won't give her anything. Right. But that forcing her forcing her to like restand and i think that's pretty funny too but that's also part of the comedic tone it's like when you've done it long enough then you can break the rules so i I, like you know like they teach yes and and not negating people as a foundational like you know way like your first few years of like live people paying to see you live it's a pretty good rule to stand, stand by but after a while no one wants to play by any rules and so that that is part of what i love it's kind of like it's, it feels like you guys have this kind of like Nichols and may thing but you've been doing it for like 30 years on the road <laughs> and i love it i kept on telling her on, on my show that I, I feel like you guys and i know you've probably been on the same stage at like paracons or some other things but like you it would be so fun just to see you guys like tenny and napic for an hour no plan <laughs> well we, we do what's up weirdo lives we used to do them at this bar stash oh <sighs> And we would literally just like book the event, sell tickets, and then it's just her and I stand next to each other with, with microphones and just talk in front of the audience for an hour and a half That's and then great. riff off audience questions. And like, it's, it's pretty funny. I think people seem to enjoy it. I'm sure they do. I would, I'm serious. I'm going to fly up for one of those and surprise you guys because I would, <laughs> I would really dig it. Cause like your show, um, while you guys discuss things that are definitely of interest to me, it's it's really one of these uh, shows. I, I I had this like kind of habit of pleasure delaying things, so I'll mm-hmm. kind of like figure out exactly when I'll need to listen to it. And a lot of times for me, it's in the morning after my second or third cup of coffee. I'll start like you know maybe doing dishes or watering my plants, and then I put it on because it's just a great tone to my day. It, I appreciate that, and I'll take any compliment whatsoever <laughs> because I had no idea that. Like I would, I mean, we're, this is our third year doing this mm-hmm. now. Like I never thought that we would do this for three years. Oh, I hope you do for 300. I mean, honestly, like, please. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was one of those things because it's so strange. It, it, for me, if I try and deep dive it, which I shouldn't, if I think about like why we started it, like we started it during quarantine so that people could listen to friends talking because people were missing that they weren't going to the bars and hearing background conversation. There wasn't yeah. a weird person sitting next to you at a restaurant saying something weird. And so that was the formation of it. Like, let's just let people hear two friends talking to each other. But then like all these layers, like I said, I shouldn't deep dive it when I start to think about it. Like, cause we're not a paranormal podcast, but we're two people very interested in like supernatural and paranormal stuff. Right. And then I start to think to myself, like, oh, it's really important for people to see that people who have a genuine, in my case, lifelong, hurt, hurts to, lifelong interest in supernatural, paranormal, occult phenomena 
are also just absolutely normal people. Yes. Yes. And I think that my, at least for me, I mean, the appeal is, is multi multi-layered, but like that is definitely something that I gravitate towards. And, but one thing that I think your show does for people who love the paranormal stuff, like I do, um, it really kind of gives you a behind the scenes look at what it's like to do this for a living. Because I like hearing you talk about like, you know, Oh, my plane was delayed here. And then I got here and, you know, it was a good weekend because these people were here. Like, it really is. It's like, Oh, this is what it's like to do this for a living, to be in this as a career. And so for me, I would find like the mundane side, which I'm not calling it mundane, but you know, but it is. Yeah, exactly. When you're talking about packing <laughs> your bags, but I love mundane stuff and I find like beautiful, like art and mundane things. And also I find my mundane moments very funny. Yeah. So. I, I tried to for years, literally years. Uh, I, there's probably a YouTube clip still on there somewhere. Um, but I, maybe in like 2009 I made this YouTube video called like the realist real paranormal show that will never be shown on television <laughs> and it's it's a trailer so it's only you know one minute long but it's this it's me sitting at a desk reading and smoking and going through books and then it says four hours later and it's still just me sitting at a <laughs> desk reading books and smoking <laughs> cigarettes and I, I have literally legitimately tried to convince networks like people will watch yeah. researchers doing research. Yep. Yep. They will. They will. And the, the thing is, I have a feeling, well, one, the networks and studio system is they're dinosaurs and they know it. Yes. But, you know, like with all these new ways to put your, I mean, I don't know if I like the word content always, but to put your art out there. People will watch that. And I mean, I would watch you sit sit around and do like re read a book about palmistry while you smoke cigarettes and drink coffee. <laughs> it sounds pleasant. It's like, hey, I'm hanging out with Tenny. What a great guy. <laughs> it's like the stuff. It's strange. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend online today because I had mentioned on another podcast that I was reading the transcript from the UAP hearing mm -hmm. that just happened. And they contacted me and said, where did you get the transcript from? And I said, oh, I copy and pasted all of the closed captions from C-SPAN and then put it in a document and then corrected it so that I could have a transcript of it because the congressional actual transcript probably won't come out for a couple months. Okay. And so like I spent a whole day like copying and pasting, watching this two hour thing for eight hours because I had to keep stopping and starting, right. like fixing the transcript, correcting the transcript so that I could read it and have like a, a deeper understanding of it. But that's like the day of a paranormal research. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds great. I mean, like, that's not a bad day as far as I'm concerned. Now, let me ask you this. Did you, because I watched it one and a half times. Um, mm -hmm. And while I was, you know, like, the, the you know, I'm not going to, like, deconstruct it too much because, uh, you know, I don't want to upset people. But, like, did you glean anything new from actually reading it as opposed to watching it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Non-biologicals are still by. <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't like uh, make any more sense to you than. <laughs> I mean, what what became apparent, in, especially in that uh, non-biologic section, like the way that the questioning goes, is you have a question being posed. Um, extra? Are there any extraterrestrial craft? And the answer is, I can't discuss that. Right. So there's, that's a non-answer. Yeah. And then the next question is. 
you say that we've recovered pilots from these crashes. Is that true? And he says uh, there have been non-biologics. Okay. She asked about pilots. Right. His answer was non-biologics. And then she said human or extraterrestrial. And he says non-human biologics. Now, he doesn't say extraterrestrial. Yeah. He says non-human biologics. The majority of life on this planet is (laughs) non-human biologics. Right. It could be a squirrel. Well, the term biologics, too, is usually used in reference to, like, germs and viruses. Uh-huh. So, like, he could be talking about anything. But people hear in that, that, and that whole exchange happened within, like, 30 seconds, right? So people have heard the words extraterrestrial, pilots, recovered crash. Yeah. And then he says something that, you know, non-human biologics, which sounds weird to people's ears. And the next thing you know, everybody's like, oh, he confirmed that we have aliens. No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. <laughs> but it's funny because I had so many friends from like LA, from like, you know, high school, like text me like, dude, you were right. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not <laughs> first off, I'm not right about anything. Like, you know, uh, but it's funny, so many people just heard with you know, I think actually most people didn't watch the hearing, I don't think. I think it was like No, most people didn't. No, I mean I did. I watched it with my mom and had coffee and it was kind of a sweet little day. And uh but you know, it's like people saw the sound bites, and if you weren't into this stuff or hadn't heard these narratives repeated for thirty years, I could see how you would hear somebody, you know, in a congressional hearing, say non-biological. Oh, sure. go, Wait, whoa, shit! Like gray aliens, <laughs> you know? Like yeah, no, absolutely. Like that's. I feel like that's how it's. That's how, that's how it. Like that's how these ideas continue to persist, right? Is because like so to really get myself out of my mind space because I spent the whole day watching it and then talking about it on Twitter and talking about it on Instagram with people and thinking about it. So like that night I went to the bar and I went to my local home bar and there were maybe 20, 25 people in there, all people I know because it's a local home bar Mm -hmm. on a Wednesday night and no one in there knew anything had gone on about UFOs or UAPs. None of them. And so it's like, this is a cross section of what's really going on in the world. Yeah. Like I'm the only person in this bar. And I mean, there's no scientific study here, but I was, I'm the only one that watched. I'm the only one that knew. And I'm the only one that was interested. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, like, yeah, it's just going to take more to get people even like quasi interested in this stuff where like, you know, if you, you know, kind of go and see UFO Twitter, they're like, well, it happened. You know, what what, what were they calling it? They were calling it like, first off, the worst like messaging ever. They call it like Vietnam of UFO. What were they calling it? There was some like Vietnam reference to like, I think it was, I mean, you can probably guess who it was, but it was a UFO tough guy. (laughs) Like, this is our Vietnam. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? First off, that's like kind of offensive. And like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, And, and the other thing is too, like, that I had to point out to people like, so uh, less than a year ago, I think in May of 2022 is the last time we had a UAP hearing mm-hmm. in Congress. And then before that was 1968, we had a UFO congressional hearing. And before that in 66, we had a congressional hearing. So it's like, it's not, this was the first time there right. were two other two 50 years ago. Right. And, in my brain as a researcher, it's like, cause I always talk about how 
the phenomenon, whether it's Bigfoot or ghosts or UFOs, like seems to be cyclical in nature. And it seems to wait for people to forget and for it to completely fall out of people's minds. And then it comes back around because like the 66 congressional hearing that was brought on the floor of the house by then Michigan Senator Gerald Ford, Mm -hmm. because 5,000 people in Michigan saw UFOs like 5,000 people, not like the congressional hearing we just saw there. You have two witnesses, one who has never seen anything who was the star witness, which is so strange. (laughs) I thought so too, man. I really did. And then like 50 years ago, you had, a, a congressional hearing because like 5,000 people had seen the same thing. And if I'm not mistaken, that was when, was that era or that kind of flap of UFOs in Michigan, wasn't that when Heineck came in and termed it swamp gas? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that was the Michigan swamp gas incident. Right. Yeah. Right. Where he, he came in and, 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 but that was also for Heineck because he was really pressured to say it was something. Yep. That was also the moment that Heineck was like, I don't want to work for the government anymore. Yep. And then formed the Center for UFO Studies yeah. and started saying there is something yeah. like there. It was kind but of people forget too, like when we talk about like, oh, military and pilots though, that's so much different. It's like UFOs was basically kicked off in the nineteen fifty when Donald Kehoe wrote his book on UFOs. Here's another Air Force guy, a former pilot, writing a book about government and UFOs. And p- this is another thing that drives me crazy, kind of, which is like people are like, it's never been this big, though. Oh. And it's like when so Kehoe's book sold 500,000 copies, right? Wow. Now, you have to remember, in 1950, the population of the United States right now is 330 million people, right? In Kehoe's time, only in 1950, it was 150 million people. That's wild. It, half the population and his book still sold 500,000 copies. Like, when you think about a book selling 500,000 copies, now that's fucking, like, the best-selling book of all yeah, time. Yeah, truly, truly. You're right. <laughs> right? Now you're, yeah, now you're talking about a country that only has 150 million people in it, and he sells 500,000 books. Like, it was as big as it could fucking possibly be. And he was, like, a decorated military guy. So, every, you know, yeah. like how, you know, everyone's excited about Grush because he, you know, is a intelligence guy had the inside you know had access or whatever but like i mean like this isn't also the first time we've had somebody who could potentially be in the know come out with this stuff you know in in the 1990s there was that big book the day after roswell which was written by lieutenant colonel philip corso oh yeah right and i mean that's a lieutenant colonel now talking about we have recovered bodies from roswell and like you know he was on c-span and he was on larry king and in a pre-social media world like larry king is like like the way twitter is now right like something going viral on twitter was being on larry king yep it truly was i used to tape every single thing he did on ufos i probably still have the vhs copies somewhere in the box but <laughs> they, they were fun. <laughs> yeah, I do. I really should. Oh man, because I think Larry Larry was so great. He was so dry when talking about like this really wild stuff, and it was just his tone was hilarious and amazing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, so since we were just talking about Michigan UFOs, do do you? always kind of and i i know historically you have and you were a collector of like you know michigan uh you know paranormal stuff ufos folklore and all are you still kind of like always actively like trying to document 
uh, weird occurrences in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan is always will be just because it's my home. Obviously, it's closest to my heart. And so I try and keep track of all the weird things that happen here. But now with the advent of the Internet, like my horizons have broadened because it's a lot easier now. But even like there's stuff that happens that no one talks about, doesn't gain news traction, which I find just as weird like 15 years ago in the city that I'm in, even this is why like, it's so important to read like little local newspapers for like three days, like purple dust fell on the city. What? And it was like covering people's cars and people were complaining about it in the local newspaper and like calling the police about this purple. And then it just stopped and it never was talked about again in the newspaper and like no, never solved or anything like that but it, it's stuff like that that makes me go like oh you have to watch every yeah. fucking little city in the world cuz who knows what the fuck is going on there and then you know uh a few years ago one city over there were these giant like they were getting like mini earthquakes just in that city what and people were complaining about like their basements were shaking and stuff was falling off their walls and no one knew where it was coming from. And then after like a month, it just stopped Oh, see, and no one ever talked about it again. And I'm like, that stuff is just as fucking great as like oh, Bigfoot yeah. and UFOs. Truly, I mean, that is what makes Charles <laughs> Fort like still like a talked about person. I mean, like I, I would, you know, probably label if I had to label myself, I would label myself a 40 because I'm like an all purpose weirdo where I, I, I love stories about meat falling from the sky and you know and like you said purple dust i mean that is the good stuff i see i had no idea about that that should be national no one no one does because it's just one of those things it's like a little tiny local newspaper most local newspapers you know at least in the they're starting to come online Mm -hmm. but a lot of that stuff will never get digitized like no one's gonna have like hometown herald volume two from 1972 no one's got a copy of that that's going to get scanned and put online i i know man and like one of the sad things is i'm obsessed but with uh you know nebraska weirdness and i've been driving along to around a lot of these small towns and i have like a membership to look at all the newspapers like uh, you know small town ones and everything but now like the last five years i've noticed that all these small town papers are written by news aggregates from mm-hmm. like a, from like a big city, and they may have one local story that's actually written by someone local. But like yeah. to me, as like a person like you know trying to investigate the weirdness in Nebraska, it becomes really hard because I could tell like when these old stories, you know, maybe not to the level of Mary Higher and Point Pleasant, but there were people who were interested in the weird stuff that was going on in their town. Yeah. You know, and now I feel like that's kind of going away in a, in a you know sadly it's it's one of the so like i always tell people when you're if you're traveling around and you get a chance to stop like at a local library usually in that library they have a, a very unused not being used anymore microfiche machine and most newspapers were put on microfiche up mm-hmm. until about 1985 or 86 And so you can go in there and dig through a file cabinet and just sit all day long and scroll through newspapers and just train your eye to look for the word like haunted UFO, Bigfoot, uh, monster, like, and just scroll and you find the weirdest shit just hidden in these little newspapers. And those are, you know, uh, my public library where I started doing research at one time had like six microfiche machines. Now they have one. Right. And, you know, no one goes in there and uses it but me. (laughs) 
the last time I used it, I had kids staring at me through the window trying to figure out what the fuck I was doing. Is he looking at an x-ray? But, what is he doing? Yeah, they're like, what is he, what's that thing? But yeah. it, it's just, and but it's lovely too to go in there and like look at old land plat records and books and, and see where like old trails used to be or where old farms used to be. And you can start to piecemeal together. Like a lot of these stories that were just reported quickly at the time, you can actually start to get deeper information out of them because they didn't have the information that we have now. Yep. You're exactly right. I I have gotten my, some of the best and weirdest things that I can't find on the internet from librarians, some historians, but mostly librarians. A lot of these small counties don't have like a historical society in Nebraska, but I leave my name, my number. The first time I meet him, I bring him a coffee. And mm-hmm. they are, because libraries, people don't use them that much anymore. They are right. so happy to help me with anything. In fact, I will get emails out of the blue from, like, hey, I also found that the junior high was haunted. The gymnasium, a girl died. And they'll be like, if you want, I can. I know the woman who uh, runs a school and I can get you in there. I'm like, wow, thank you. So, like, yeah, you know, I think, I think they're so thrilled to be used and not used, but like, you know, using their abilities to yeah, yeah. find the stuff. Yeah. The, uh, you know, there was one, we had one weirdo librarian at my public library when I was, you know, 15 or 16 years old, who was like in a punk rock band and loved UFOs and stuff like that. And like when I was, I think I was either 18 or 19, but you know, he knew who I was by that time. And he was like, you know, you should do a lecture like and like it was a librarian that said, you know, if you don't charge, you don't have to pay for the room. You know, you can just do a lecture. And that was like my first lecture was at the a public library because a librarian knew me, knew that I liked weird stuff and thought, oh, I bet other people would like to hear about weird stuff. And so like it's librarians. They're important. They are, man. My mom was a librarian, librarian for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what they do. Now, this brings me to a question because you, you remind me of something. You kind of, in terms of speaking and doing your lectures, got started. Because I, I think I've heard you in other shows or in an interview mention, mentioning that you would drive like hours and hours and hours when you were first getting started for basically like very little pay, if any, and just to do lectures at a librarian somewhere in a small town, Michigan, that was that kind of like, I want to try to phrase this the right way. Like in an, a comedian's, <laughs> in a comedian's like early days, you know, like they will do open mics and really shitty coffee shops. I did that for so many years. It was a nightmare, but kind of fun and romantic in its own way. But was that kind of you finding your footing and your, you know, your voice and your tone on how to speak to this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what was weird I didn't realize I, I like comedians my whole life. Obviously people oh, like have comedians that they like, mm-hmm. right? Like I grew up liking Gallagher and yeah. George Carlin oh, and yeah. when, like Bill Hicks blew my mind when I heard Bill Hicks for the first time. And, um, but yeah, but I didn't have any idea until probably 2000, a, a friend of mine, Corey was, had been doing stand up for a couple of years. And we were having a conversation and Corey's like, you know, you're a road comic. Yeah. And I was like, what? And he's like, and that was like the first time I had ever heard that term or knew what it was. And he's like, you and I do the same thing. He's like, I do comedy. I drive around the country. I get paid nothing. I stay in terrible hotels. I do comedy for no one most of the time. Yep. 
and I keep doing it so that I can get better at my craft. He's like, and that's what you've done for the past 10 years. You drive around to these libraries in the middle of nowhere. But what, so yeah, I think there was this like honing and that's why I feel such an affinity toward comics right. because I feel like I understand sleeping on a couch and like eating half of a Snickers bar <laughs> and then hoping that you get paid enough gas money to get to the next place yeah yeah i mean it usually usually just they pick up your bar tab which Mm -hmm. i which when i was young i would make sure i got my money's worth on and they'd be like damn we just should have paid the guy you know yeah because with libraries like i i was i knew that i needed to learn how to speak and how to give lectures and i knew that libraries had no money so i knew that they would love having a speaker that they didn't have to pay right Right. And something interesting and unique and different where I'm sure everyone who was there was like, damn, that was great. <laughs> well, and I, I really do think about this a lot, which is I would have, if I would have been like 10 or 11 or just or right around that age, if someone weird had come to my town to talk about ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs, but no one ever did really. I mean, there were metaphysical conventions and stuff I went to later as a teen and met up with a cultist at the weird metaphysical bookshop later, but I was a teen, an older teen by that time. But I always think about like, there's a little town somewhere where there's like a 10 year old or a 12 year old who wants to hear someone talk about UFOs. Mm-hmm. And when you only do like big cons and big conventions and you know, whatever you need to be paid, you know, X amount of dollars. Like that kid's never going to have an opportunity to like look into the eyes of someone else who's as weird as they are. Right. And in those little libraries and in those little town halls doing those lectures, like the greatest fucking questions and insight comes out of it because it's someone who's been thinking about it. You know, whether it's a kid who just started thinking about it. So it's a fresh imaginative idea or it's someone who's never like embraced their weirdness so they've just been in internalizing their thoughts for 40 years and now they get a chance to unload like you find magic in those moments oh you really do you really do i mean because uh yeah i mean i was lucky enough to have like a call there's a sort of a i mean he was dr jack casher i'm not sure if that rings a bell he was kind of a he was mm-hmm. you know nebraska mufon but my dad was friends kind of kind of friends with him and he was a local professor and he would like every month put on like a ufo lecture and my dad would pull me out of school and they would let me out of school in seventh grade to write a paper about it like, awesome. it was like yeah i got like an independent study which was in seventh grade it was amazing but like that changed my life like i loved it i didn't have anyone else to talk to about it because none of my friends gave a shit but like for me it was like <laughs> it was like i couldn't believe it he would bring like abductees there and i would just be like what is happening this is the best thing i've ever seen you know like yeah no so it's, it it's utterly it's it's amazing and can have amazing effects and like for me on many different levels giving me the opportunity to meet people who were outside of my sphere of thinking so that i could get new ideas and construct new ideas with them but also like I grew up with a speech impediment. I stammered and stuttered really bad when I was growing up. And so I was l- also learning to find like my voice beyond that in inability to speak clearly. Right. That's And then timing too. Yeah. Yeah. Timing like a comedian does. You have to find your yeah. timing. I mean, and yeah. it kind of goes back to uh, I'm sure quite a few of the people who are going to be listening to this show have, you, have seen you do lectures. But 
I remember when I first saw you do your first lecture, which I believe was last October when you were in Omaha, I was so like, I, first of all, I was amazed by, I, I was laughing the whole time, but yet, <laughs> you know, I, I was laughing my ass off. And then, but I was also just like, you know, you were throwing out these without answering the question, you were throwing out all these weird questions and ideas that were really like philosophically powerful. You know, even kind of when you talk about like how every like um, organism on the planet had like a billion trillion years to not exist and then they come into like that. I, I mean, like I think about that all the time still to this day. And it, 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 and I remember it saying to you afterwards, I was like, oh, my God, great set. And I didn't even mean to say it like that. But that's what I tell other comedians is, you know, great set. That's what you say. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever said that to another paranormal researcher or lecturer before. Well, thanks. I, I had a lot of help learning how to do my lectures. My, you know, my mentor that I talk about sometimes, Craig Ciccone, he was like the first person to tell me when you're bored of what you're talking about, like the audience is a hundred times more bored than you are. So like you have to keep yourself fascinated with what you're talking about. And so many people like, uh, like another thing, when I was going to school and even in college, like having a professor stand in behind a podium and just like talk at me for an hour, it, like I couldn't do it. And so like that, like my pacing started cause I pace when I lecture, right. but it keeps my brain going. It keeps me in action. It keeps people's like, I, th I think it keeps people engaged. Mm -hmm. I hope it does. It does. But I'll take the compliment. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you know, the, one of the things, and I don't know if this is intentional, but there's something about your show that, or your shows, I know you have multiple lectures you do, and they're probably always changing, And but, like, they feel interactive in a way that a comedy show feels interactive. Do you know what I'm saying? When, I, when I've been to a, I mean, I've been to probably an embarrassing amount of UFO conferences in my life, and I had just never experienced anything like that, where I'm like... I, I like, and, and I'm not like, you know, downplaying the dry kind of like, you know, Jacques Vallée type lecture. There was a place for that and I'm a fan. But sure. with yours, I was like, oh, this is interactive. I felt like part of John's show, you know, like it's a, <laughs> it's a really good quality and maybe there's, you know, maybe that's unintentional, but it's a great accident if it's not. I, I think it's unintentional, but I think that some of that comes from the fact that I'll say something that to me is really bizarre and screwed up and as soon as i finished saying it i think this is just it's, this just came natural to me because i always try and say everything that i'm thinking without putting up any blocks so i'll say something that seems really bizarre and strange and then in my brain my brain is going like what the hell was that and then <laughs> so i'll say that out loud not in not really understanding that everyone in the audience is saying, what the hell was that too? And so now we've connected on the level because you know that I don't know as much as you don't know. Yeah. And now we're all in the same fucking boat. <laughs> it's so true though. I mean, like that is a great result though. Of, of, of like you kind of threw, I think one of the reasons you, you did mention to me that I love chunk of your, like you have aspects of your show kind of somewhat planned out. But a lot yes. of it, you don't know where you're going. I don't. So I, I know the, how they start and I know how they end. Uh -huh. But then the middle is just going to be. And I think this was, if I've ever done anything that was in my brain good, 
when I gave my first lecture at that library, Chris, the librarian said like, what's it going to be on? And I said, weird stuff. And he was like, great. I really, I don't float my own boat on a lot of issues, but at some early age, I realized I didn't want to be the UFO lecturer. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be the Bigfoot lecturer. I didn't want to be the ghost lecturer. I didn't want to be the occult lecturer. I wanted to be the lecturer who talked about all of that stuff. And so when I start talking about, you know, Bigfoot, there are parts of my brain as I'm saying and, and giving some facts and info and dates about Dogman or Bigfoot or whatever. And my brain is also like in my, in my own head, I'm like, Oh, and you have to bring up like that occult philosophy, that with that summoning of that nature spirit and how it relates to the green man. And like, then like, and it just goes off. And since I'm saying everything in my head, it all comes out of my mouth on stage. Well, that, Said, I mean, I think it's being light on your heels like that. I mean, like I, I love, like I'm steeped in the punk rock culture, but I have a great deal of respect for a band like the Grateful Dead because they would go out there with no set list. They had no idea what was going on, and a lot of times it was the shows were garbage, but sometimes they were magical, like they were performing ritual magic on stage. Whether you like their music or not, what they did is amazing. I think should be inspirational to all artists because, like that could be one of the reasons why your show is so because when you're watching people like artists discovering things and then being excited about it there's something so captivating about that you know yeah i agree and then you know i'm again i'm just putting things together in my head because i'm listening to what you're saying (laughs) And, and so like one of the one of the bands i was in right at the time that i started lecturing i was in this band for a couple years called green wall perfect and we had me and a friend had played at a party but when i say played i mean he picked up uh acoustic guitar i picked up an acoustic guitar and he and i just improved songs at this fucking party i'm sure to the annoyance of everyone at that fucking party right (laughs) and a guy was a guy was like you guys are really funny you should put out a record and we were like whatever so months went by and then Uh, I got a phone call from that guy and he was like, I booked you guys studio time like months ago and it's this Sunday, like you have to come record a record. And so Todd and I, the other guy, like we just went to the studio. We didn't even have equipment because we were the guitars at the party were somebody else's. And we asked like, do you have a guitar there? And he was like, yeah. And we didn't have any songs, nothing. We'd only done that at that party that one time. And we went in the studio and recorded eight songs. We just improved them. And then we started playing shows and we didn't have a set list. We didn't know even our own songs. And until the record came out, like then people wanted to hear those songs because they were on the record. (laughs) Yeah. So we had to learn our own songs so that we could play them in concert. But usually our concerts were just completely improv. I would just start playing something and Todd would just start singing over the top of it. That is absolutely incredible. I love that kind of performance art in general because I find there is such a dangerous quality to it. <laughs> Where yeah, I mean, the show, you know, our shows weren't great. Well, yeah, but you know what? But I mean, like, sure. But I always appreciate the the bravery and, and the courageous aspect of that. But sometimes it's like it's like improv shows. I have probably done. I'm not even joking. Thousands of improv shows, but only like twenty five percent of them were good, and only like fifteen percent of them were 
really good. And 5% of them, people were like, holy shit, I can't believe it just happened. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, you know, you got to swing for the it's magic. It is magic. Well, I mean, you know, even speaking of improv, the long form comes from Del Close, who is a ritual magician, which I, I know you know about. But, like, I think a lot of people in the improv world don't even know that, like, the guy we all learned our techniques from was, like, a basically a full-on <laughs> Golden Dawn Thelemite, you know, like, right? you know, pulling from, um, you know, Crowley's books and teaching improv with it. <laughs> it's, I love it. I do, too. I think it's fantastic. Um John, speaking of media, being a media guy myself, you have been on, I think the number count is exactly three zillion paranormal TV shows. Uh, you know, you've had your own show, Ghost Stalkers. <laughs> you've been on Kindred Spirits a thousand times. And I mean, the list is long. Mm -hmm. What can you give us a little flavor of what it's like to work on a paranormal TV show? Because I have no idea. I've never done non-scripted. Uh, it, it really depends. So... Um, trying to, th so like, I'll, I'll give you the difference between like kindred spirits and ghost stalkers. Mm -hmm. So ghost stalkers, uh, when you're talking about a non-scripted show like that, like there usually is a writer mm -hmm. sure, and the writer will say like, you'll get a, a script for lack of a better word. And the script will say like, um, John and Chad arrive at the location John and Chad talk. Uh, John and Chad interview witness. John and Chad investigate. And then on the last page, it'll say like wrap up talk. John and Chad will talk about what happened. Like that's the script. Right. Um, just a structure outline, basically. Just a structure outline. Right. And then you literally just show up and hope something happens. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's so nerve wracking. Oh yeah, it's insane. Yeah. And then, you know, the the problem though is uh when you're filming a paranormal show, like something might happen in the moment and there wasn't a camera person there. Right. Or you weren't mic'd. Right. Or you said something and the mics didn't catch it. Uh -huh. So you got to go back and give people that moment. And then when you watch it, I mean, you can tell when someone's just talking off the cuff yeah. and when someone has said something before and they're saying it again. Right. <laughs> and so like, it's really important to have a good crew to be able to catch everything that's happening. When we did ghost stalkers, we, so we were the first show, you know, when all the ghost, most ghost investigation teams up into a certain point said like, we're alone in this location. Right. But that's that wasn't true. Yeah. Like there was craft service outside yep. and there were cameramen and sound men. Yeah. A production van. It's an army, a small army of people. Yeah. 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 Um, so with Ghost Stalkers, I think we were the very first show where I demanded that if because I had to investigate one whole night by myself and then the next night Chad would investigate all by himself. And I wanted to make sure for my own mind's sake that no one was screwing with us. Mm -hmm. And so I negotiated with the network and with the production company that can't all camera people, all production people would wrap uh, an hour before I went in to investigate. And so they were off site. They were gone. So the only person there was Chad, he would be in the RV and then I would investigate by myself all night. And then the next night we'd, or, you know, the next day we'd film witnesses and stuff like that, but then they'd wrap, they'd leave 
I'd be in the RV. Chad would go and investigate by himself. Well, this caused a lot of real fucking hassles because that also meant we had to be our own cameramen. Oh, my God. So when we were investigating a location, you have to know where a person is kind of in time and space, right? So if I'm carrying a camera and I walk from the living room into a bedroom, you have to see me do that. So so I would have a camera on a tripod and then I would be carrying a camera. So I would have to set the camera down on the tripod in the living room start to walk into the bedroom, make sure that it saw me going into the bedroom. Then I'd have to come out, get it on the tripod, go back in the bedroom so that you would have footage of me walking into the room. Oh my Lord. So like you had to catch everything. And if you didn't catch it, like we were screwed. Oh, so you're doing like 15 jobs. I mean, you're doing, I mean like, so did they wire the place for sound or did you wear lav mics or? We, we had lav mics. Right. Oh yeah. my God. And they were just left running the whole time in the RV. What an editing nightmare, too. <laughs> oh, a disaster. Now, on something like Kindred Spirit, they embrace the fact that they have a crew with them. They right. let their crew like be involved if mm-hmm. something happens to the crew. Yep. So that's you know kind of off the table for them. And then um, Kindred really is like, I don't think they have any kind of outline or script writer or producer. Like, like here's the case. Uh, Amy and Adam show up and just go. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, and and they are able to find, because like there is always kind of a beginning, middle and end to their episodes too. I mean, like I, that is probably, I think the best like mainstream paranormal show on TV. I really like the tone of it. They're so like, you know, uh, highly likable people too. Cause they seem like real sweethearts, which definitely helps. Cause like there is like a kind of, you know, there's like, different kinds of people in the paranormal there's kind of like paranormal tough guys which that always rubs me the wrong way um but i like <laughs> I, they seem really sweet and genuine and like they love what they're doing and they realize what a privilege it is and i always think that that's a wonderful thing to see yeah and so like in in my situation with kindred they'll be investigating somewhere and either amy or adam will call me and say can you fly to pennsylvania this weekend and i'll say yeah and yeah. then they like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I'll show up there and, you know, I'll go from the airport right to the location. And Amy will say like, so, you know, this is a, a haunted historical museum and we're going to investigate it tonight. And I'll be like, okay. Yeah. And then just go. No kidding. So you, you're not given like a little dossier or like a document Nothing. that kind of gives you the four one one. Really? Nope. Okay, because I totally assumed that, like, you know, when you, because, you you know, you're an on quite a bit, Greg and Dana are on, and I figured that you were given, like, a piece, you know, some literature that a producer had written up so you can understand kind of what's going, oh, so you're just coming in totally blind. Yeah, yeah, there was one Kindred Spirits episode where we, I got there, and uh, Amy and Adam were investigating the night that I got there, so I didn't see them until they were done investigating and then they came back to the hotel and i was there and amy was like so what are we going to do tomorrow tenny and i was like uh do you guys have a analog tape recorder and she was like and she was like nope and i'm like can we drive around tomorrow to thrift stores and i I can find one and she was like yeah it sounds great and so like i drove around to a thrift store found a analog recorder and some cassette tapes and that's what we did that night that's fantastic but that's, that's, see, again, that's like something that probably 
is one of the ingredients that makes the show good, you know, like, because it's hard to, even if you're like a trained actor, it is hard to act naive to a situation. Yeah. You know, so like, you know, like, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that's, that's fascinating. I don't think people realize that. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's that way for other shows, but. I, I, I only know the ones I work on, but yeah, I mean, there's, and, and the other thing is too, is like, if it, you know, because you do with television shows, you have to have a narrative, right? You mm-hmm. have to have a beginning, middle, end, like you said. Like, it has to have some kind of resolve, and there has to be some kind of, you know, story that's told. And so sometimes, you know, a whole bunch of stuff will get filmed, and then the story will go sideways because it's unscripted. Yeah. And then you just scrap everything. So, like, I filmed uh, with Amy and Adam at the Valeska Axe Murder House for that episode of Kindred Spirits. I was there for like three days i'm not in that episode really it just didn't work for the story as they were interviewing a witness the story just went in a different direction so they were like yeah that was great stuff but we're gonna go this way with it and i will say bravo to them because there so many of these shows and even like in scripted tv when things don't work they're like well it's supposed to be part of the story so let's just ham fist it in there and it ruins it ruins the narrative that should have been followed yeah, and there was good stuff in there. Yeah, you're like, a, damn, I had some good lines. <laughs> we were down in, we were down in, I don't know if I should even say this, but we were down in the basement of the Velisca Library, and there was a desk down there. And on camera, because the librarian gave us access to all these papers in this kind of archive area, like on camera, Amy and Adam and I, like, I don't, I don't even know what the reason was. Maybe because it was just so jam-packed with, like, boxes and things. There was an old desk, and when we moved the desk, we found a secret drawer that no one knew was there. Whoa. Like we discovered it on camera, like with all these like papers. No one, the librarian didn't know. The archivist didn't know. Like we found it. That didn't make the cut. Whoa. That's incredible. Because, and again, production, some production companies would have ham fisted it into the episode. Like almost all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just knowing from working with them. I mean, like, yeah, because if something like that, like, no, we have to reconfigure the whole story because that moment, we just have to sell that moment. Yeah, uh, bravo to them for like truly keeping it real. That's kind of amazing. Uh, yeah, but it's it it's it it. I mean, the thing is though, is it gets paranormal reality television is one of those things where people always ask like, is stuff made up? And it's not like you just if you're at a place like not nothing. You can't guarantee that something's going to happen every time you're at a place, right. which is why you're at the place for a week. Yeah. You know, and so like on TV, it's only 44 minutes long, even though you've shot, you know, 12 hours a day for seven days, you know, you've got 70 hours, 80 hours worth of footage and you have to condense it down. And so like the first day you're there, you might get a floor squeak. Yeah. Uh, You know, three days later, you get a really good EVP. And then three days after that or two days after that, like a door slams. And so when you watch it on TV, it's like squeak, EVP, door slam. Boom. Like it's all happening at once. People are like, oh, that place is crazy. Yeah. It's like a, we took a week to get three things. That is good, and I think that. But I think that should be encouraging to people who are, you know, you know, trying their hand and investigating, like myself, you know, because uh, I, when I've gone out for the sole purpose of trying to experience something, like nothing's happened <laughs> at all. Yeah. But it, you know, that's what I expect because if you could make this stuff happen on demand, then you would be God. <laughs> you know, you'd be oh, yeah. God. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I don't mean to like you know, harsh anybody's buzz on this stuff, but you know, I do a lot of conventions and I do a lot of like 
group investigations where it's like, you know, 200 people that are broken up into 10 groups and they move through different areas. And it's like, some of the groups might have something happen. Some of the groups might not have something happen. Mm -hmm. If something is happening every single time for every single group, you've got to start wondering what's going yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it'd be great if it would, but, you know, it just doesn't seem... If if this stuff happened as frequently as some people think that it happens or as, it ha as much as it happens to some people, yeah. then that's reproducible and studyable. Mm -hmm. And scientists should be called in and actual testing should be done. That's, you're 100% right, because then it would be applicable to the scientific uh, the scientific method. You could repeat it. You could study it in a controlled area, and it doesn't work like that. High Strangers does not work like that. Unfortunately, it <laughs> it'd be cool if it did, man. It would be, but then I think it would be like less interesting. I agree. I agree because I kind of, John, I had this kind of theory because I've been thinking about this stuff since like, I don't remember a time in my life where I haven't been, to be honest. But, mm -hmm. you know, like you wonder sometimes if the mystery in the unknownness of this stuff is the whole point. Like I'm kind of one of those people, you know, a lot of people are like, well, someday we'll know what the UFOs are and represent and where they're from and what they want. I'm like, I don't think that will ever happen. Ever, ever, ever. Because I'm not sure if there is like an answer, really. I think it's like, you know, and, and this is just me, like, you know, just doing college room bong hit territory dorm talk. But, you know, like, <laughs> you know, but I do wonder if the mystery in the unknownness is like a key component to this phenomenon or whatever you want to call it. I always, I, when I started off, you know, 32, 33 years ago now, whatever it is. Like, I thought for sure, like, oh, we're going to get closer to the answers. Someone will figure it out. Yeah. Like, whatever. And now I'm at the point where, let's let's just take aliens for an example, right? Like, my best case scenario, what I would love more than anything, is for, like, a flying saucer to land. Yeah. And aliens to get out. And they would, like, find someone or communicate with us through a gestalt mind consciousness. Yes. And their first question would be like, hey, do you guys know what the fuck ghosts are? <laughs> <laughs> we see you guys with these shows, man, and going into like these decrepit old houses, man. So you might like, have we've been we've, we've been trying to figure it out for 500,000 years. <laughs> and look, that that Patterson Gimlin film is really good, man. What, what's the deal with that? <laughs> yeah, it's Bigfoot a thing. We got people on our planet that do magic. Does it work? Oh, my God. That is a great opening premise for a film. You know, finally, the <laughs> day the Earth stood still moment happens. White House lawn, the whole schmear, and they just want to know what ghosts are. <laughs> God, that makes me really happy to think about. Um, speaking of, so, like, you know, because you have been, how long have you actually considered yourself an investigator? So... I did my first kind of investigation. I wouldn't have considered myself an investigator at the time when I was 16. Mm -hmm. I was dating a, a woman girl who, who thought her house was haunted. And I was the spooky, ooky, kooky, weird guy who knew about that stuff. Yeah. But I probably, I always, for easy frame of reference, like my first lecture was in 1990. And by that time I had, I know that I had already been investigating. Mm -hmm. And by that time I'm like doing public speaking. So it's like 90 is my 
beginning, right. I think. Right. But before that, there were obviously things that's, you know, I was going to metaphysical conventions and uh, when I was 16 and investigated that house very terribly because I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> 1980, 1985 or 86. Right. Like there's no, you know, books really about how to be a ghost hunter. There's no ghost hunting reality shows on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was me walking around with like a Bible in my pocket and some white candles and like, you can, you can go away if you're trapped here. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I would kill for video footage of that. But a, by a the, young by Kenny. The, oh, there's, God. there's, I'm sure there's some stuff around somewhere, but. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No. Uh, so yeah, I think 90 is when, cause I think everybody kind of does that. I think everybody goes through that in the teen years, like hanging out in cemeteries, trying to talk to ghosts. It's interesting. It's cool. Uh, obviously now it's a lot bigger because of TikTok and social media, like people can go out and do that stuff. Right. But um, it's, it's interesting to me too. So I was probably 19 or 20, that, which would have been 90. Um, but people will always tell me in the past, people have said like, Oh, I've been an investigator since I was six years old. <laughs> Because people want to have like this weird prominence that they've right. done it their whole life, sure, right? Sure. But what's interesting now is that like I have seen six-year-old kids at ghost hunts. Wow. Like I've seen seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds with EMF equipment because they've grown up watching paranormal right, reality shows. Right, right, Like you're, you know, we are going to have people who have been investigators since they were six years old. Totally, totally. Because I, I, I would have eaten those shows up as a kid. Yeah, yeah, of course. God, that's amazing. So, so you've been, you know, so you've been doing this for a while, right now. And and is did you start off with kind of like an un, like a you know? Because I feel like most people think they're courageous enough to go check these places out by themselves and do this and that, and you know, go to a haunted place. But did you? Cause I, I, at least in my mind, I feel like you're somewhat fearless of this stuff at this point. Did you always, were you always like that? Kind of had, you know, would you go into these places and fear wouldn't hold you back? Because fear always held me back from really like pushing investigation I, I, further. I think if it comes from anywhere, it comes from the fact that I was a punk rock kid mm. and I lived in Detroit in the 80s and like the area was not great. That was when Detroit was murder capital of the world. Right. You know, and so you were just kind of being Detroit adjacent. And being a kid in the 80s, like you were just fearless because things could go sideways at any time about anything. Right. You know, and so going into an abandoned house that might be haunted didn't seem all that scary (laughs) just because there were certain like areas and neighborhoods you wouldn't go into because you might die just walking down the street. Right, right, right. I mean, the scariest thing about kind of what, what keeps me from going to weird places at night in rural Nebraska is the people. Not that mm-hmm. there's bad people out there, but like people in general scare me. And if I'm, you know, somewhere at two in the morning, like in the cornfields and I see like, you know, some guy that doesn't like the cut of my jib, that is not going to be a great situation for me, you know? <laughs> right. No, for sure. And is that, 100%. is that something you've had to contend with? Cause I mean, you've been to a lot of abandoned buildings and probably. Oh yeah. There, there have been many incidents where things could have gone very wrong. We were, there's an episode of ghost stalkers of obviously it didn't make the cut, but we were in. Chad was investigating his night and the way that the cameras were set up, I could see down a hallway that he hadn't gotten to yet. And I could see that there were people in the building and he didn't, they weren't supposed to be there obviously, but they were squatting in the building 
and I, I, I didn't have any way to communicate with Chad and I was, I'm watching him like walk down the hallway because he's hearing sounds that he thinks are ghosts or something strange. And I can see that it's people squatting in there who, I mean, that can go really wrong if you scare them, if like, if they're not, you know, thinking clearly, like it's pitch black, you know, you're walking around in the darkness. The only reason you're seeing is because you have night vision on your camera. Oh God. So they can't see you either. And like, it's just this terrifying moment where it's like, you know, I have to get up and run out of the RV and run into this building and like (laughs) scream for him to not come. Oh man. You know, but a lot of things like that have happened, especially like not even with people being in there, but just going into abandoned buildings and you're not familiar with the situation. You've only ever gone in there at night, which is crazy. Like it's something I don't do anymore, but the amount of times, like I've almost fallen through floors or, you know, stairs have broken under my feet. I've in, in the 33 years that I've been doing this, like I've fallen into three graves. What? Like that's a thing that happened for a while. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) That's a thing that happened for a while. I, I, I mean, that is horrifying, horrifying. Like I like cemetery late at night. Never been there. Walking through, thinking I hear wood crack under my feet, so I must be standing on an old coffin. Step backwards. Didn't realize the wood cracking was because I had stepped off of the top of the coffin. Oh. So when I stepped backwards, I put all my weight on my back foot, and that broke the top of the coffin. So then you plunge down into the grave. Uh, you know, a few years later, you're walking around cemetery, dark, don't know what you're doing. And the thing that's so funny, right, is the first time you fall into a grave, you're like, I've made a lot of bad life choices. <laughs> but at least this is never going to happen again. Yeah, I learned my lesson. That's one thing I I'm good at. Yeah. Right. And then a few years later, like you're laying in another grave yeah. and you're like, you're like twice. Dude, like, was it going to get through to me? <laughs> Right. But at least, I mean, lightning striking twice, it's not going to happen again. Right. So then you let your guard down and you're in a cemetery and you fall in another grave for a third time. And you're like, oh, John, I'm, you know, not a mathematician, but I got to think the statistical uh, possibilities of you falling into three graves in your lifetime is abnormal. It's it's probably abnormal, and but I'm at the point now in my life where I'm like, well, it could happen again. Yeah, there's. I think you're good for one more, probably. <laughs> at least one more. <laughs> let me let me uh, ask you this because I don't get uh, opportunity to speak with people who have as much experience as you. Um, Brian Corey, our mutual friend, and I. He's another Omaha guy like me. Great guy. You're going to be speaking at his wonderful conference in October. We can't wait to have you in Omaha. Yep, me and Cindy. Um, it's gonna be so fun. Uh. We are going to go do an investigation at the Malvern House in Iowa. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it's, you know, gossip stuff. And I've been there during the day for kind of like the, you know, whatever tour. And it is like a very vibed out, creepy ass place. And so we're going to go do like the, you know, full investigation. I'm so excited because I've never really done a lot of, you know, ghost investigations or any legitimate ones. But is my wife, like she, she obviously is like, she, she has like a mild interest in this stuff and, but she kind of is like always worried. She's like, hey, you know, Steve, I'm glad you're like, you know, doing this because you love it so much. Good for you. But please don't bring anything back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's very fair. You know, I'm not allowed to use my Ouija board in the house. Like there's rules. And so, um, right. you know, is there, a, it sounds weird, but like, is there a way to protect yourself? Like from 
bring any kind of like unwanted residue <laughs> home with you that you know of, or like even just like that works for you. Uh, I have a lot of stuff that works for me and I don't know if anything that works for me works for anyone else. But I mean, you know, when you go to these locations, like it's always nice to announce yourself mm -hmm. when you leave. It's always nice to say goodbye. It's always nice to tell things that they have to stay there, that they can't follow you. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, some people will like sage themselves after they investigate. I have like on my house, my friends have always talked about me because I have like a force field around my house because I go to so many weird places. Yeah. I don't want things coming back. Yes. And I don't necessarily think that I can control things, but I can control my environment. Uh -huh. And so my house is really um, like my safe space. Like I know nothing can get in here. Right. Um, to the To the point of like, if something is going wrong, I know that I haven't like done some, done one of my kind of protection spells the right way. Right. But the reality of the situation is like, you'll have to find for you what works. And sometimes that's like really convincing yourself and understanding. I I'm a big person, at least for me, when I investigate. As far as I know, I don't know what ghosts are. I don't know what UFOs are. I don't know what Bigfoot is. I don't know what monsters are. I can only make assumptions from what I, seems to be my reality. And my reality is this planet and everything on it, for some reason, uh, seems very catered to living things. Humans, animals, whatever. It's a very this this planet seems living centric mm -hmm. right so i'm trying to put into words how i think in my mind which is kind of hard because i don't know if i describe it correctly so if anything unliving or not of this world is in this world for some reason it has expended energy to get here which has made it weaker than i am because I belong here. Right. Right. And so like I'm starting off at a default. I'm already more powerful than the other things. I like that. So like when I go into a location, I go in knowing I'm already supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be in this reality. I've chosen to go here. I've made the decisions. This reality is mine. Now, if there's something else trying to contact me from somewhere else, like it's somewhere else and it's expending energy to get to me. So it's weakening itself in trying to contact me, which makes me even more powerful than it. Wow. Right? Yes. So I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it totally it's just a, makes a sense. Mind, a mindset. But it's, it's, well, it's a mindset. I mean, and, and I feel like mindset is everything. Cause I mean, I sort of like, and this is like, you know, this is what, you know, like we're saying, my own personal like way of looking at it. I feel like if you, go into a forest and start aggressively knocking on the trees and yelling at a Bigfoot and you have guns and dogs. Well, if you have some sort of encounter, it's going to be an aggressive encounter because that's what you're putting out there, you yeah. know? And, and I feel like probably the same would be with almost any of this, you know, high strangeness is that what you offer is what yeah. you're kind of going to get back. And this, that's almost the same way with humans. If you go up to a human and if you're like, pushing them, calling them names, aggressive, like, well, you're going to get aggression back most likely. Right. So why yeah. And so when that? you go, yeah, when you go into a location, I mean, that's the other thing too, right? Like you're going in because you want to communicate because you want to literally 
make friends yeah. with whatever's there. You want to create a relationship with something that's there, right? So that's good intention to begin with. And com when communications end, you say goodbye, friend, or goodbye. You know, I'll see you later. Maybe not, but hopefully our paths will cross again someday. But I have to do my thing. You can do yours. Like, you know, I sing a lot during investigations. Mm -hmm. I try and ask happy questions. I try and stay away from, you know, uh, did it hurt when you died? <laughs> yeah. uh, how was it? How did it feel when you were stabbed in the face? Like, <laughs> sorry to laugh, <laughs> but I've seen people do it. Right? Oh, like yeah. I've seen people go to these super dark places, and I think about myself being out of body. If I were somewhere, like I would want to talk to a friend. Yeah. And I would probably want to talk about the people that I loved and the things that I love. And what I liked to do and the memories that I have that were pleasant to me, those are the things I would want to discuss. And so when I investigate, I always ask, like, can you tell me the name of someone you love? Can you tell me uh, did, what books did you like? What kind of music did you like? Uh, just trying to start a conversation the way that you would normally with a normal human being. Right. Wow. I love that. I think that is a great recommendation. Uh, you know, it's, you hear it all the time banging about, but really setting an intention is, is a meaningful thing, you know, even just like, you know, we are dealing with humans, you know, <laughs> like, but yeah. why wouldn't it, uh, be relatable to whatever this phenomenon is that we love so much? Yeah. And when people, I've seen people investigate too, and people will be like, they'll walk in a, a haunted location and they'll say like, Oh, that, that, that room has given me some screwed up vibes. Right. And so they'll go in there to investigate. But like, I'm one of those people who's like, well, maybe you shouldn't go in there. Maybe that's someone's space. And when you go in there, now you're intruding on someone else's space. Like, why don't you stay out in the hallway and try and say, like, then speak to whoever or whatever might be in the room and ask permission to come into the room. But people be like, oh, that's the screwed up room. When you go to a bar or a restaurant and you walked in and it's screwed up and you get weird vibes, like you walk into a club, you turn around and leave. Yep. You're not like, oh, I'm going to hang out here. This place seems terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's really a common sense approach, you know, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. I hope you guys are all taking notes. It's like, you know, th <laughs> this is good. Just be a good person, damn it. Like, <laughs> yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, don't be a dick. Be a sweetheart. It's so much easier. Uh, John, thank you so damn much for giving me your time to be on this show dude like this is... i would talk to you every day if i could oh man you like well you're a big git in this world and uh you know like i i was like really excited kind of even nervous to talk even though we've hung out a couple times I'm like oh i just don't want to ask him dumb questions uh but man thank you so much this is so much fun and i would love to have you back on down the road if you'd be down with it Anytime. Um, I would actually, I would love to have you and Jessica on sometime just so we, everyone can get a taste. Oh, oh, her again. Her again. <laughs> but it would be so fun. I would love to get, you know, like the three of us have a couple of drinks and just talk about life because uh, I'm such a fan of you guys and such a fan of yours. And, you know, I truly treasure being new buddies with you. So, man, thanks for being it's on my, my show. My pleasure. Pal. I rarely meet people as nice, as happy, and as excited to talk about this stuff as you. It's a real, like, flower in the lapel of the paranormal dude man thank you that means so much to me because i love this stuff i think i'm part of my enthusiasm is that i've been kind of uh closeted about talking about this stuff my whole life and yeah. the pandemic that was my big like 
revelations that like I want to lean into this stuff a lot more because it makes me so happy, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> it really does. It really does. Nothing else makes me as happy is to talk to people like you and to talk about these wonderful topics. So thank you so much for your time, my friend. We will have you back oh, on. Thank you for having me. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Obviously, uh, if you haven't checked out the what's up weirdo podcast, do it, please. I'll put links and all that good stuff to, where you can find information on John's lectures, his podcast, and all the other work he's done. But is there anything you have coming up you're excited about? I have lots of conventions starting. We're closing in on October, strangely enough. Yep. You're, I can't believe it's coming. but And I bet that is a grind for you, but a happy one. It's a very happy one because I get to hear people's weird stories. Ooh, you're so, I love it. You're so lucky. You're so lucky. Thank well, you for having me on, Steve. Thank you very much for being on, John Tenney. You have a fantastic evening, my friend. All right. I'll talk to you later, buddy. All right. Bye, guys. Have a great night. Peace.